I think this is recording. I think it's like 80% chance it's recording. 90%. Chris Mather, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You are someone who got onto our radar in a very random way. Someone actually popped into the FS Jam Discord and they were like, hey, have you heard of this Elements thing? Is this FS Jam? And I started listening to the podcast recording you did for JavaScript Jabber, which we'll, which we'll link to. And I was listening to it and I was like, okay, within the first five minutes, you've mentioned Meteor, Cold Fusion, and the original Ruby on Rails demo. Yeah, this, this sounds like FS, FS Jam to me. So all of these kind of influences, like we've talked about Cold Fusion on like half our episodes at, at this point. So we're, we're coming from the same world here, I think. So why don't we first get, you know, a little bit of your background, who you are and what Elements is. Let's see. My background is fundamentally, I guess I, I'm a software developer, a builder, an engineer. I started my career a very long time ago, back when the internet and, or the web was really becoming a thing. And I, I did that in the in the uh, the United States government. So I started working for the for the government when I was uh, in high school, a sophomore. That was kind of my entrance into into professional programming. So I did that. I took a, I did a brief stint at Microsoft, but then I ended up going back to the to to the government. I guess that's my my claim to fame is working for the Ed Snowden contractor. But I didn't I didn't do anything crazy. I just did that that gig for a while, and then eventually I made my way out to Silicon Valley. Here I've t- I've taken on various various roles at startups and. But I've always had an affinity for programming, and that's that's what I really like to do. My last gig before Elements, I was the CTO of a uh, of a YC company. Um, it was a healthcare fintech company, and maybe backing up just a little bit. Prior to that, about six or seven years prior to that, I was working for like a high growth startup that we ended up selling. Well, the owner sold it; I was just an employee. But uh, and then I went to work for the for the company that acquired us for a little while, and then I I just couldn't deal with it any longer, and so I did that for about a year or two, and and then I left. And I did like the opposite of high growth startup stuff for like four years. I, I made education videos where I taught basic, you know, mathematics, computer science, and then I would publish that on the internet and charge people for it. <laughs> I did that for like four years. So it was very content heavy, creative kind of business and, and an incredibly difficult business. You know, I, I learned a lot uh, by doing it and it was a great creative outlet, but extremely exhausting. After about four years of doing that, and you know, if you're, I'm sure you can resonate with this. If you're doing podcasts or any kind of, you know, media or content, it's it's a lot of brainwaves activity every week, and it, it can get exhausting. So my wife and I had to talk about it, and it was like, hey, you know, have you seen what uh, these tech companies are paying, you know, Facebook and Google and whatever? And, and you, you need to knock off this crap and go get one of these jobs. She she was very supportive. This is kind of our collective, you know, conscious talking. And so the. You know, I, I started that kind of loosely flirting with the interview process of those companies. And one day I went down to Facebook and I kind of and I sat in their in their area there for a while and just kind of got a sense of it. And I, and I just hated it, honestly. I, I, I was like, I don't want to do this. It feels like I'm going to be plugged into uh, like a cattle into this where they just like take your brain. That's probably not accurate, but that's kind of what it felt like. So imagine the matrix, right? Everyone, everyone waking up out of the plug in their neck. Yeah, it just felt something felt off about it. You know, who knows? I'm sure it's great to work there. But anyway, about that time, a friend of mine reached out and said they were looking for a CTO to join their their YC company. And, and these are two business guys. And it wasn't a, like a tech company in the sense of, you know, building dev tools or something. And, and so I wasn't honestly very bullish on it. 
And I politely said no. But they ended up going to YC. They raised money. They they built an initial prototype and they hired a couple of engineers and they came back and they said, okay, okay, it's very serious now. We need, we need a CTO. And I, I had been working on elements for a couple of years, like the designs for it and stuff. So I had notebooks filled up with it. I had all the concepts I had had grammars drawn out for the language uh, for on the UI. And, and there was a bunch of other things, but I hadn't actually really written a, a full prototype yet. And I thought, well, this would be a good opportunity to do that as, as I've been building web apps since I was a kid, but it's nice to have a North star when you work on something you know, something to guide you, the use cases. Otherwise, it's very easy to go off. I might do something in compiler theory for, for six months, you know, or something that's interesting, but at the end of the day, I don't have a thing that works for users. So I, I took the job under the condition that I could build elements there and that their platform would run on elements. And of course they said, no, uh, this is too risky. And I said, well, yeah, but you know, so was being a CTO of a startup. So we went back and forth and finally they said, okay, fine, you can do it. So I built elements there. And for a timeline, where, where, when is this happening? Oh, let's see. What year are we in? <laughs> uh, I've been in the Matrix for a while. Uh, it was 2017, 18, something like that. Yeah, because I think that's, that's interesting to, to draw out here, which is that this isn't a framework that you just kind of like showed up and were like, hey, I'm, I've got, got this new framework I'm, I'm working on. This is something that you've actually been working on for a long time, kind of in the background and is now being revealed to the world. It's not something that you're kind of like starting and putting out there. It's something that's almost finished that is now being put out to the world. Yeah, that's right. It's a very non-standard sort of open source path in that, yeah, like you said, I, I kind of built it behind closed doors and we were building it, which is good and bad. I mean, it's good because it runs a system that has over a hundred million dollars flowing through it. It's a HIPAA compliant, you know, healthcare app, fintech app at that. Uh, so we're doing banking transactions. They were doing banking transactions and it's very serious. You know, we, we can't, uh, in that app, we couldn't lose anybody's money. Not, not even just a tiny bit of their money, no money permitted to be lost. So, you know, we, we really had to treat it seriously. Security was a major concern. And, and there's all these little details, you know, like when you're in a, in a HIPAA compliant app, you can't have unencrypted data just flowing around Amazon's network, for example. So you've got to terminate SSL at the application nodes. And so little, little things like that. And I think that that really battle tested elements that created elements in the, in an incubator where let's just build the hardest damn thing we can. And I'm glad I did it, but I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> it was kind of one of those experiences. It was very difficult. That's where elements came. I quit my job at element at, at lively. It got to a point where the engineering team started to grow, 20-something engineers, and, and the CEO said, you know, you've got to kind of decide, do you want to do the element stuff or do you want to run the engineering team? And it wasn't 100% clear, but I thought about it for about 10 minutes or so, and, and then I said, well, I want to do elements. And so I quit. I worked on elements for about another six months by myself, uh, pulled my head up, and I was like, I wasn't sure whether I was going to bootstrap it or not at that point. I hadn't open sourced anything yet, but I basically had the prototype working. And then I went on the, I decided, you know, it's a software company. I'm going to probably need to hire some people. It's pretty serious. This is a very foundational piece of software. I better go raise some money. So I, I did the fundraising process. I did that last year. Well, two Christmases ago. And uh, here we are. Awesome. And you have defined elements as an app framework and a build tool. So I like to get into kind of the distinction between those two things, but then what you also said when you were kind of defining this on, on JavaScript Jabber, you said it's an app framework and a build tool for TypeScript that makes developing apps fun again. And I thought that that was like such a good pitch and really resonated with me as someone who has gotten into some other kind of full stack frameworks and at, like you kind of call them app frameworks that 
it is like it's it's fun and the the kind of like excitement you get when you talk about this project is one of the things that really kind of draws me to it so what is it that makes it more fun than the development you're doing before yeah well first of all you know i think just to kind of riff a little bit on that emotion development is fun when it's done right it's like a pretty awesome job right I mean, if it's done right, it can also be a total nightmare depending upon the, the place you're at and the type of work you're doing. So it's the best of it's, it's like extremes, you know, it could either be the worst possible job or it could be the best job. But software development innately, I think, is fun when you're in the process of building something. I think it's because you, you have some concept of something you want to make. So maybe it's a business process you want to make more efficient or it's a website you want to just kind of throw together just to achieve making a website, whatever it is. When you start to do it and you see your work come together, that's a very exciting thing. And I, and I think that's a fun feedback loop to be hooked up with. But what makes it sort of nightmarish is, and I think this is probably true for a lot of developers, there's so many roadblocks beyond just the, the building part and learning the languages and stuff. It's a lot of tooling roadblocks, right? You just constantly, it's like one thing after the next, nothing works. It takes you know three days to get up and running. Have you ever heard this yak shave, the term yak shaving? Yeah, yeah, it's like a lot of freaking yak shaving, right? And, you, and, you go, and you, you're doing this depth first search through getting your Vim set up and getting your environment and getting things to install. And before you know it, you haven't built a damn thing. So I think, you know, in the context of open source, open source is great in many ways and it's terrible in some other ways. Uh, you know, it's great in that there's a proliferation of ideas and people are creating. And I think that's really wonderful. I think there's some really great projects out there. You know, back when I was younger, back when like before Bill Gates was saving lives he was murdering people in back alleys and like not allowing his competitors to to even get off the ground you know uh that that's how old i am and and it was very hard to get access to software back then you know like if you wanted to get a database you, you had to like deal with a microsoft salesperson you know or oracle right yeah yeah and it's like oh it's a minimum price twenty thousand dollars or whatever it, and then that's why like when mysql became available it was such a big deal it's like okay you just download this thing this is what everybody uses now and so that so the idea of opening up access to people to be able to create is something that's very interesting to me and i think open source really kind of espouses that that ideal the bad part of it is that it's very disorganized and there's lots of stuff out there and it's hard to figure out what to use and what's good and what's not. And there's also a lot of nonsense in terms of marketing buzzwords and things that people have to sort out. What the hell is this thing? And every day seems to be some new buzzword that's been created. It's as if we've reinvented computer science and mathematics each year when the reality is that most of these concepts haven't changed at all since the 90s. You know, I think that uh, the big thing behind elements and where that ties in is I said, okay, I want to do something a little weird here. Normally, and I know I'm going to get my butt kicked a little bit for doing it because normally you slot in, you write a Hacker News post that's like, okay, I just want to be clear with everyone. I'm just doing the smallest possible thing I can to fit into this very specific niche of the ecosystem. And please don't hurt me. <laughs> and I went in and I'm like, I'm going to do the whole damn thing. <laughs> Every aspect. Uh, and the North, the North Star for me is, is it easier for the user or not? And that means I'm going to have to probably write a package manager and I'm going to have to write a build tool and I'm going to have to write the UI language and I'm going to, you know, it's a big project, man. Uh, a couple of years for sure. So anyway, let me, let me pause, but that's the gist of it. Yeah, totally. That's great. And there's a lot of stuff to dig into there. One thing that I did notice right away, as you were just saying, you've rewritten or you've, you've written most of this stack yourself. You weren't really taking a bunch of different pieces off the shelf and combining them together, which is most of the frameworks we talk about on this show, things like Redwood and Blitz, that is their approach. They found a bunch of different libraries, they curated them, they put them all together. 
Whereas you're taking this approach that's much more like Aldo. You, I really want you to meet Aldo. He's on the Redwood team, and the type, he's the type of person who would say, yeah, spending six months writing a compiler is fun. There's not a lot of people who, who had that sort of opinion, but you two share that. <laughs> Sounds like we'd have some good hikes together. Yeah, exactly. So how do you think about the, the build versus buy or, you know, in open source, it wouldn't necessarily be buy, but is there anything that you would take off the shelf or do you really think you would just write everything from scratch? Cause that's just how you approach things. I think any developer will relate to the idea that this is always an existential crisis. You know, do you use something that exists or do you, you know, reinvent the wheel? I'll answer your question directly, but let me kind of back up and talk about some of the context that I, I maybe talk about some of the feelings around this. There's a lot of stigma against building things from scratch. You know, there's stigma in the workplace. There's stigma even in open source. Ah, this has been done a million times. And why would you waste your time in anything? And before you know it, you're, you're, you're not permitted to do anything except learn the latest buzzwords. At some point, I remember having just a distinct rejection of this idea. You know, I just got angry with it. And it was like, okay, I, I'm going to just go through my own process. And so anyway, that's just sort of a general... I don't know if it's a tip or just something kind of I, I learned is that I, I'll go through a generative process first. If there's something that's good that's out there, then I'll use it. I don't have any particular problem with using other people's stuff. You know, an example of that is, is React, the first uh, version of Elements. I should say this, this is actually to, to add more weight to this. Elements started as a UI language. So it started as a uh, reactive HTML. And that's kind of where my, I think that's one of the coolest problems. But I pitched, I put that away and I just went with React because... The TypeScript compiler already works with React. Uh, a lot of people are already using React. And so I just kind of started with that. Although now, you know, in a couple of weeks, we'll have elements reactive HTML as well. But that's an example of where if people are using it and it works, then it's fine. In other areas of the stack, you know, like the build tooling, there's just no way to do what elements does with Webpack. It's simply impossible it, without basically rewriting core parts of it. And that's not even getting to the performance issues that it has, right? There's nothing out there faster than Elements, other than maybe ES Build. ES Build is close, although it's still not as fast, but it's very narrow in its scope of responsibility. So it's, it'd be like if Elements just does linking, then yeah, it's going to be, I can do the same benchmark in actually much less time. But it's fast. It's, you know, the, if something takes 30 seconds in Webpack, it's going to take like 100 milliseconds in Elements or ES Build. Yeah, you actually said on your, on your website, you said that, Elements apps are the fastest apps on the planet. <laughs> it's probably my, my investors telling me to be boastful. You know, it's not my nature, though. <laughs> yeah, no, that because you're you don't strike me as someone who who throws out uh, statements like that without at least something to to back it up. So so what is like you said that you had to rewrite the build tool from scratch and you're not using ES build, but are you writing it in some sort of systems level language? Like what is kind of underpinning your build tooling? All the tooling is uh, that's infrastructure kind of tooling, build, package management, uh, all that is Go. So that's the same as ES Build. Some of the techniques that ES Build is similar, uh, you know, we can go to any level of depth of tech you want, but Elements does do some things differently. It is ultimately faster in an apples to apples comparison, but it does a lot more. So in order to actually do a comparison, like, like ES Build doesn't even touch TypeScript. I mean, it'll emit TypeScript to JavaScript, but it doesn't compile or anything. It just kind of punts on that problem. That's where it's in, in Elements is actually very integrated. So Elements does server and browser automatically. So it's not a, it's not a, like a one JavaScript file, single page app, and it doesn't deal with the server at all. It handles both targets. So when you're compiling, you're compiling your one file for the server, for the, for the browser. It's doing transforms. So for example, 
in elements, you can just import a service function and call it. That's how you deal with it. You can do RESTful API, you can do GraphQL, if you want any of that's fine. But if you're starting from scratch and you're just doing it the elements way, you just create these functions, they're called service functions. So it's just in a file in the services directory, you can export functions and import and call them like you would any, any function, no, no special syntax or anything like that. And the build tool takes care of converting all that to RPC. So those are just some examples of some extras that it has to do. What you were just saying right there about importing your services and just kind of calling those functions directly into your database, like that's kind of how Blitz is set up. And then if you were to build out with like a whole GraphQL API, then you'd be getting closer to like the kind of, the kind of Redwood territory. But what I really liked watching some of your tutorials and your videos is that the code you write in Elements, it's it's just it's very familiar. Like like kind of looking at it, like everything I saw you were writing, even though it, it didn't necessarily map directly to any specific framework, it all just kind of looked like the type of code that I've been writing. Like it's very express-like and obviously it's React and TypeScript, so it's got all these kind of familiar pieces that have been kind of like almost remixed into this like new new package. But that's, that's what I really enjoyed about it at, at first glance is that nothing looked too crazy or, or out of the ordinary. So like, how do you think about like the API and like the actual like code that you're writing and how, how you kind of thought about that? Yeah, well, first, Anthony, I appreciate the compliment. Thank you. And, uh, and the analysis. Yeah, my, my general philosophy on building the, you know, what features go in, what does the surface area look like for the elements, you know, code that you interact with, particularly the framework parts of it. And, and, and more generally, what is the overall development experience? So, in, so there's so many topics. In a sense, I'm building for myself. And so when I'm, when I'm working on an app, you know, I know I'm successful in, in the framework and the build tooling when I'm having a good time building something with it, you know? So that means that it has to be really fast. The hot reloading has to be almost instant. And so there's a lot of work that went into, into that. So for example, when, as you're working in elements and you update the HTML or CSS or the service functions, anywhere, anything in the stack, the browser is updating almost so fast you can't even see it. It's very, very quick. So for, there's, no, there's no full process restart, for example, on the server. It's all in memory. The module cache tree is refreshed hot in memory. And the browser doesn't, hot, it doesn't refresh either. It's just hot patched the head section with all the latest new assets. Combining that with the HTTP caching, what you end up with is a very, very fast loading experience, very, very fast, hot reloading. And all of that works really great with CDNs and all of that as well. So as a quick, another pitch for elements, it's kind of like, you don't have to compromise between building an app and building a static site. It just pretty much is the best option. <laughs> if you're going to be doing like a marketing site or something, you could maybe build a static site and you'll get a little bit more performance out of just serving it off the CDN. But with elements, you kind of get the best possible performance you can get for an app. And on the previous point about, is it the fastest in the world? It's certainly the fastest development experience. I'm fairly confident in that, but it depends on, you know, I hesitate with all these benchmarks because it's like, you got to really do an apples to apples comparison, you know, to get a, a fair, I, I don't like to be too hyperbolic, but on the other hand, there is something to just coming out and being like, look, it's fast, man. We've been working on this for a long time, but the more important thing than the raw benchmarks is, is the overall developer experience. Meteor was a great example of a pretty good developer experience. They made a lot of mistakes. I mean, they, they, like, they didn't have anything with the ecosystem. It was like their own thing. So I learned from that. It was like, hey, you can't just like build your own package system and that, that doesn't have any of the things that people use and then expect them all to migrate over to your system, especially when your thing is crappier, right? Like if you're going to replace something, it has to be better than what exists. And then, you know, the other, other problem they had was they didn't have a router. So it was like, well, this is weird. It'd be like if you went and you're going to buy a car and 
you show up and you're like, okay, I want to, I want to drive the car. That's my goal. And like, well, we're going to give you the car, but it doesn't come with any wheels. So what you're going to have to do is go find some wheels for the car. And you're like, well, what do you, what do you mean? It doesn't have any wheels. This, this how I got to drive the car. How am I going to drive it? And like, well, there's 5,000 wheel providers all throughout California and you just go pick one. You know, they're all have pluses and minuses and you know, good luck with it. And uh, that's kind of what it feels like when you're building an app. So coming back to the final point, philosophy wise here, I don't want to make something that's so far off from what people do that they have to learn some brand new paradigm. We've got some pretty good primitives here. We have HTML. It's been a long time standard. You know, it's taught everywhere. Uh, we've got great documentation for it. HTML is here to stay. CSS, same thing. You know, it's pretty good. You know, it's got a lot of problems, I know, but you know, it's been around for a while and it does all these cool things. And you just have to learn some idiosyncrasies and it, it's kind of there. Languages, you know, I would love to build my own language. The UI language is about as far as I'm going to go with that. But, you know, building a TypeScript style language would be certainly fun for me. But I don't think that that's a great strategy for a startup. And I think that that's something that generally takes decades to get it right. And so I started this project with a very kind of utilitarian perspective of make it so that it's a smooth developer experience and we can do the things that you need to be able to do to build an app, cut out all the bull that doesn't matter. But try to stay with with tech with mainstream technologies and for the language, let a big company do it. So that was, you know, made TypeScript a natural type of thing. And when if you're working in lively or like a, a enterprise situation or anything where there's like a big app, having the typing and TypeScript is really pretty useful. As a CTO, it helped me sleep better at night. because uh, otherwise we had all kinds of issues in production. We we actually had it as JavaScript before we switched and it was a nightmare. Last point on it is that, you know, routing, things like that. I think if, if another framework like Express or something had a, had a nice idea, I would t I would I'm happy to take it. And then for things that are not good, I would get rid of it. Routing is one of those in, in Next.js, for example, it's all sort of magical. That doesn't work, in my opinion. Most of the time you want to you want routing and code because you want to do some things. You want to do authentication. You want to get some data. You want to set meta tags, title, whatever. So routing is all in code and elements. It's very Express like, right? You you render a page. That also allows, allows us to set the data for a particular page. It's cognitively easy to follow. You start with the URL, you work your way to the function. From the function, you work your way to the view. So all of that, I think, is, is a fine way to, to build. All right, feels like I've been talking for a while, but maybe I addressed your points and a couple others as well. And we got a lot of philosophy to spin around here, but um, you got anything to jump in here with Bernsey? I've been listening. I've been quickly browsing, having a look deeper after you've given some context. Because I looked at it straight away and was like, oh, they're doing some abstractions on some other things without looking too deeply. But now that you said that you've built everything by yourself, it very much now goes in my mind, oh, yeah, you can see that you have. Obviously not TypeScript and things like that, but you, you can tell. And I was just looking at the starter template that was on GitHub, and it looks like a really good cross between Express and React, it then gives me additional questions like, is this server-side rendered? Is this like client-side rendered? You know, because it's very different on how some of the wrappers are made. Yeah, uh, well, th that's a great question. It turns out it's also a very hard problem. And I think it's at one of the core kind of paradigm shifts over the past couple of years. So when I was uh, young, everything was server-side rendered. We already invented server-side rendering many years ago. You don't get any credit for this. We already had it. Then we went to browser-side rendering, and then we went back and treated it like a new invention. <laughs> but no, we had it. Server-side rendering. 
there's a lot of benefits to this because, you know, when you render a page, you're already on the server, you have access to things on the server. Uh, it's a sort of easy mental model to some degree. You have to kind of learn the, the HTTP back and forth and all that. But once you learn that, but I don't think most people would say, well, Rails is impossible to use, at least for the basic use cases. You know, when you start to use it, one of the things that made it so popular was DHH did this blog post or demo video, right? Where you can make a blog in two minutes. And it was astounding. I remember seeing this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. It's got the whole thing, you know, the database and there's a nice command line tooling here and nothing, it doesn't, doesn't appear to get in your way. And he had a sort of dogmatic ethos that was exciting, at least for a little while. You know, th that was interesting. Then all of a sudden you have something like React and there were some precursors to React, right? So, you know, they, they weren't the first to come up with this. And, and certainly like HyperCard and, and some of the software tooling that was available to us in the, you know, long time ago were really the first people to come up with this. But the idea of reactive rendering, which is that you design your HTML or your, your view as essentially states, various states of the user interface, and it responds to data automatically, turns out is a pretty good way to do user interfaces. And so now all of a sudden, like if you look at Lively, you've got this very complex user interface. There's all sorts of things going on, right? You click a thing, graphs are updating on the right-hand side, blah, blah, blah. And so people want that. They expect that kind of user interface. But to get that with Rails is a huge pain in the butt, right? You've got, a, you've got spaghetti code, and now they've come up with some kind of bizarre thing where they're sending HTML over the wire, and uh, you know maybe it works. I'm probably just being hyperbolic. But the point is, it's hard to get both of these, right? So you end up either with a single-page app that has really cool user interfaces, or you end up with the server-side app that's like probably a little easier to manage, but not as great of a user experience. Elements combines those two. You specify the route. Basically, the primitive of the router is the URL maps to a function. You can do some stuff in the function, and then you render a page. The abstraction is it's going to take care of everything for you after that. So you, you tell us what page you want to render in response to this URL, and what Elements is going to do is say, okay, you get server-side rendering. Don't worry, we've got you covered. We invented this in the 90s. Then you're also going to get client-side rendering. Once the app is loaded in the browser, it stays in the browser. As you navigate around the app, it's going to hot load the head section with the scripts and CSS and other resources you need for that particular page. And then you can also prefetch because the same manifest that's used for the router to run in the browser can be used to prefetch all the assets. So it, it actually, there's something the build tool produces called a, a build JSON or build JS, and it has all the bundles for each page, which has code style assets required for each URL. You combine that with HTTP caching, which is to say the, the server says, hey, browser, you can keep this JavaScript asset for six months. You don't even have to come back and ask for it. Just keep it. If, if we have a new one, we'll give it a new version tag. So it gets a new URL. That's how we do cache busting. So you combine all that together. And what you get is server-side rendering, which is great for SEO and initial load times. And you can have data on the server as well. So you don't get this blank page. Two, once it's in the browser, the user experience is very fast. You, you just stay in the browser. Three, the HTTP caching means that the initial load and the subsequent loads are extremely fast. And it works with CDNs as well out of the box. So you kind of get, a, I think, the best of both worlds in building an app. And you get the performance benefits of using CDNs and caching strategies without having to statically pre-compile your site every time you add a big piece of data. That sounds great when you say best of both worlds. But my next question is the blockbuster. Where do you host an element app? Do you host it on PM2, Docker, or Lambdas, for example? Well, probably not Lambdas, uh, although we'll see. There might be a, a path for that. Uh, service functions and elements are, I, I think, one of the nicest kind of simple abstractions in that. It's just calling functions, right? So, okay, if you're just calling functions, that doesn't seem too far off in, in the universe of, of Lambda functions. 
but there's some trickiness there in terms of state and session, you know, in, in the service functions in elements, user authorization authentication is there for you. So like you can say this dot session and you can say, is the user logged in? Are they not logged in? Throw an error, even down the wire to say the user's not logged in. So authorization session authentication is very nicely integrated, I believe in, in elements. You can build all sorts of things on top of it in terms of roles and stuff like that. But the core primitive is very easy to work with. I don't know how all that would work with Lambda functions. I haven't looked into it yet. But in terms of the deployment, I think one of the great things is this good and bad. The deploy, we don't have an automatic deployment story right now for Elements. I would like to bake, to put an Elements deploy command uh, that will most certainly be in, in Elements at some point. But the vision for that will not be, I'm not making promises, but as I can conceive of it today, I don't think it'll be you deployed to Elements servers on some custom thing. One of the things I like about Elements is I want to focus on tooling. I want to focus on, on making developers really, really productive. The output of that, just like you would take the output of an Adobe Photoshop, would be a, a ping or a JPEG or whatever. You can do whatever you want with that. You can put it onto Amazon. Uh, you can put it onto Heroku. You can put it onto, maybe you put it on Vercel. You can put it on uh, any one of the deployment providers. But the Elements app itself will work with any CDN that's out there because it automatically changes the URLs all throughout the app. You just provide one configuration variable. It says, well, what's your CDN URL? It takes care of everything else automatically. So I could see users deploying to Amazon. I think a very simple deployment topology would look something like you have your app servers. You start off with maybe one and it's just a node process. Uh, so Elements apps are just node processes. And then if you want to get a little bit bigger and you connect that to your Postgres backend, or if you want to abstract it out to maybe a GraphQL or something you know, else you've got going on, that's fine too. You want to scale it, copy it. It's a very simple scalability pattern. So we copy the application server, now we have two. Now we need a load balancer, so you can use ELB for that if you want, or you can use Nginx or whatever you want to put in front of it. So I think uh, in conclusion, one, I could foresee an elements deploy command that basically lets you work with Amazon uh, or any you know, SSH based deployment provider. Then I say, let the user choose what they want to deploy on. That sounds pretty good. Okay, good. I, this is the first, I haven't gotten feedback on this yet. So it's nice to see another human telling me what they think. I build my own startup. I'm obviously the CTO, but more CEO, technical lead. So understanding how everything works and how it can work efficiently is so, so important in like the more entrepreneurial size of companies. A single developer working on an application is totally different to an entrepreneur working on an application. Just totally different. The single developer, their mind goes, I'm going to be the only developer that ever works on this. And an entrepreneur is probably going to be, what's the fastest way I can hack this out the door to sell it to Facebook? <laughs> I think your ideas are really sound and the tutorials on your website, I think are really, really cool. They're like quick videos. And I do suggest the listeners go on and watch the quick videos because even the TypeScript one is great to explain how TypeScript works in Elements. It's really, really good. Well, thank you. Yeah, we've got some work to do uh, on documentation and I had to take a detour to work on the UI language, but I'll be back at the sort of evangelism and documentation and onboarding and all that. I figured at least I should get some couple videos out there so people can get a sense of what it is. But commenting quickly on your point about the roles of, you know, when you start a project, because I think it's a crucially important point. And just to expand on it a bit, I just tell my investors this the other day, choosing your framework or choosing the technologies that you use at the start of a, of a main project. It's like choosing a marriage partner, you know? Everyone kind of, kind of knows, like if you, if you make a mistake, you're fucked. 
So you've got to be very careful, you know, and uh, maybe maybe people overthink it now. But but anyway, it won't take the analogy too far. Point is that you know that you can make choices today that are going to really be awesome or hurt you sometime sometime in five years. And with technology, you kind of know that it's going to hurt you in one way or another. The holy grail is if you can somehow create something where people can move very fast, because that's what you're in the beginning. You have to iterate on things. You know, if you're a single developer or you're a business person, whatever, you've got to see results because I think as an entrepreneur, it like a machine learning classifying algorithm or something like that. It's the iteration speed and the speed at which you're learning from what you see that you put out that matters. So if it takes you 25 minutes to do a Java build to see your change that you've made, this is this is like a nightmare, right? But you need to combine that with something that in five to 10 years is going to scale out to a very large engineering team. So I, I think that the elements primitives allow for that. That was something that I had in mind from the very beginning is like, just do it this way. It's very simple. You can build things very, very quickly. And as you add more and more people, it's still going to be okay. An example of that is service functions. Just create more functions. It's, it's fine. The security model for the functions is very simple, very easy. Uh, we don't have like, you can do RESTful routes as an example, if you want. But I know that with engineering teams I've worked with, that creates an opportunity to have debates about what the scheme URL scheme is going to be and all that kind of stuff is we're just calling functions. This is simple. We don't have to argue about this. If you change a function name, change it. It changes everywhere. No problem. Anyway, I talk too much sometimes, but I wanted to just kind of wrap a little bit on your on your point about teams. The thing is, and I think it's really funny to think about sometimes is you think big company has bought X and then you think, why hasn't it changed in two years when big company has bought X? because i've reprogrammed it completely cool um i want to just hit on a couple more technical things before we close out here we've talked about the the front end is typescript and react we've talked a little bit about the the server side and how you think about service functions but i like to talk a little bit about the database you are a postgres fan which is nice got lots of postgres fans here and when i was watching your tutorial you have migrations and it seems to me like your concept of a migration is a way to just kind of inline sql so is that accurate is there any sort of abstraction you've created to handle migrations or is it just really easy to basically throw sql wherever you need it in your project okay I, yeah there's a couple of concepts in that in that line of inquiry um let's start with migration so i you know what does a migration system have to do a migration system has to take a, a unit of change to the database and run those units in a, in an order and atomically. And if, you know, if you want it to be atomic, meaning they all succeed or they all fail, that's often the requirement of it. Sometimes we want to override that. You know, if you have, for example, a, a one migration that takes two hours, you might want to just let a couple of them run. And then if it, the final one fails, it's fine. You don't have to roll the whole thing back. Also, you know, running things atomically can, can lock up the database for too long and things like that. But in general, that's, I think what, what, what we want. It's the A in acid. <laughs> yeah. Now the SQL in, in the migrations or what is the, the specification of the migration? There's a number of things we can do. Uh, we can use an ORM. I'm not a fan of ORM. So that's maybe a broader philosophical discussion. I, I've used them. Well, I've used all of them. I finally concluded that, you know, we need to stop being afraid of SQL. It's not so bad. It's actually pretty useful. If you get used to it and you stay away from some of the gnarlier things you can do, it's a really, really great way to deal with algebraic sets. And it turns out, you know, if you go back and read the original paper from the 70s, it's pretty straightforward. It's basically just a bunch of Venn diagrams. And, you know, it's, and it's someone thinking about, okay, if you have to deal with data, 
normalization of the data often becomes just kind of a, a default thing you want to do because you don't want to have this duplicated everywhere and have to maintain different data everywhere. Okay, but then we have to bring it back together. Um, how do we do that? And so they designed a language to do it. And I think SQL is actually fairly good at it. Now, the problem with SQL is it becomes hard to read the SQL after a while. I mean, you should see some of the queries we have in, at Lively, you know, the fintech healthcare thing where we're moving hundreds of millions of dollars around. It's pretty gnarly, man. Like, I would expect that no one that's going to go in there is going to be able to reason about it. And that's sort of, and this is going to be a heresy thing to say, but I think it's okay. As long as it's contained and the inputs and outputs are understood. It's almost easier just to redo it if there has to be some crazy new thing or whatever. It's just our brains are naturally sort of okay doing generating, but trying to understand something that somebody has done is very difficult, uh, whether it's SQL or an ORM or anything like that. So what ends up happening with the ORMs is the ORMs constrain us in weird ways. Like doing a join with an ORM is a nightmare. And that's like one of the biggest things we want to be able to do with SQL data. So what are the migrations? I just let you write SQL. And the philosophical idea here is just stop worrying so much. SQL is wonderful. Your life is going to be fine. Do SQL. This is what we do in, in the government and top secret projects. It's all SQL. Fine. Stop worrying. Biggest databases ever created. It's fine. It works great. ORMs tend to get in your way, in my opinion. So the philosophy on databases and elements is strongly typed SQL rows, or not. If you don't want to use TypeScript, you, don't, you, you can leave it untyped. But it's, it's sort of a nice pattern, because when you, when you load a page, you oftentimes want to pull data from different tables. You want some kind of a list or a detail view, and it changes depending upon the page. So an ORM, to me, has never made much sense, because it's like strongly typing to the table. But that's almost never what we want. We almost always want things from multiple tables, and to bring it together into some kind of strongly typed structure. And Mongo or those types of things, I've gone all down the rabbit hole of existential crisis with it. And I finally concluded that the document orientation solves this problem sort of, but as your thing gets bigger and you have more, you realize you, you have duplicate data everywhere and it becomes kind of hard to manage. So you're, you end up being, in my opinion, kind of screwed. Anyway, long story short, I like Postgres. I like relational databases. I like Postgres because it's easy to get and it's free. And for all those reasons. So if you're starting today as a startup, I would highly recommend you to go with Postgres. And I don't have as much of an opinion on all the GraphQL stuff, but that's my opinion on databases. One last point. If you want to plug in something different with elements, I kind of wanted to make that super simple, including a migration framework. So if you have your own, you know, or you want to plug in one to the elements command line tool, I've made that fairly simple. But I wanted to make sure all batteries included so people can be productive and they don't have to, you know, not have a router to build a web app, you know, and Doing database stuff is kind of, you need that if you're going to build an app, right? Yeah, if you could plug in Prisma to Elements, I think you might get a little more pickup from, from our crowd, but that'll be for another time to discuss. <laughs> well, they can, you know, they can plug it in. The, the, the main opinionated part of Elements, like the main thing that really can't change is the routing and the server, the RPC mechanism. It's kind of the, the core things. Database, you can plug in whatever you want. You know, I, I think there's an easy path that's going to be what I would do but if you want to plug in prisma and you're used to using that and you're productive in it by all means anything else you want to hit on burnsy before we close start closing out here why did you pick elements the name mm -hmm. oh th thank you you're asking all the, these wonderful questions very few people ask me about the name and the name actually has a bunch of overloaded sort of definitions so you probably the first thing people think of is probably html elements you know it's that's wrong but it's a pretty good guess yeah, I would think scientific elements, actually, especially with like the, the React Atom model, you know? That is what my designers, the designers who worked on the project thought, you know, so they created a periodic table as like the first, you know, logo for elements. But so that's the second best or second guess. 
Uh, it's neither of those things, but all good guesses. Uh, the real uh, term from it comes from uh, a book, uh, and the book is, uh, are, you know, the first kind of canonical mathematical textbook in the world that we're aware of, uh, Euclid's Elements. Euclid's Elements, if you guys are familiar with this book? Yeah. No? <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, okay. I'll tell you a little bit about it. <laughs> uh, you should all go buy this book. Uh, Euclid is a guy who lived about 3,500 years ago. Although it's not clear he was a guy uh, at all. It's possible that it was a collection of mathematicians. He may have been an individual, uh, but he was a Greek at this time period. And, and he amassed the collection of all the knowledge of mathematics in the world and put it into a book. And the book is called Euclid's Elements. And what is interesting about Euclid's Elements, it's the, basically a foundational text. It's where sort of all future mathematics derives from. And it is a... I think I could be wrong in my history here, but I think it's kind of the, one of the first examples of an axiomatic reasoning system. And so what it does is in the very beginning of the book, there's like seven books inside of it. So it you know, starts with sort of basic geometry and then it works its way up through number theory and more advanced geometry and so on. It's a proof-based book. So what you see is in the beginning of a list of a bunch of axioms. So axioms are like primitives that don't that we can all agree on you know what is a line what is what does it mean to draw a thing between two points and then the cool thing about elements is that it has you construct the proofs are not boring i mean it's not like school where you just learn some bullshit the first proof is amazing you you construct this thing out of nothing and they teach you how to construct it and you make this this unbelievable shape that you didn't think was possible they teach you how to do that that's called the construction and then you prove certain properties about it and that's the formalisms about it. So you learn how to construct a cool thing, and then you learn properties about it. And the book proceeds like that. And it all builds up, the proofs are based on these axioms. And so you build up a proof based on a bunch of axioms, and then you can build up higher level proofs based on those proofs. And that is basically how mathematics works. And it sounds awfully like making a computer program, doesn't it? You start off with uh, sort of smaller functions, you build up higher abstractions of those functions. And before you know it, you've created this monster of a thing and you're debating things that no one can tell whether it's true or not anymore. <laughs> anyway, that's where the name comes from. I guess my final question. Do you drink coffee or do you inject it? <laughs> are you you're commenting on my hyperness or how much you've seen me drinking this? How fast do you talk? I thought I talk fast, but uh, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I drink an inordinate amount of coffee. Uh, it's the only thing I, you know, I don't drink any alcohol. I don't uh, do any drugs. But I do coffee. That's like the thing. And the reason I don't do any of those things is not because I'm, I'm self-righteous or anything like this. It's just because I'm too bonkers to begin with. So, you know, you inject something like that into me and I'm totally a, a loon. But coffee, at first thing in the morning, you know, I get up and it's just the most wonderful way to start the day. <laughs> and then I just keep drinking it until I'm bordering on out of control. And that's when I know it's time to stop. I, I, I'm the same. But I go from coffee to like, coke or oh no well coca-cola or pepsi i know it's really bad coke is delicious or tea and, and then go tea 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 like just have a cuppa have a cuppa british accent for you you're british yeah tea and then the cycle repeats then you go i've had enough of tea so you're like now drink loads of coffee <laughs> you got to game the system a little bit your, your body is tricky it starts to learn what you're doing and then you have to fake it uh, that's that's funny i was actually gonna I was actually gonna make a joke about how fast you were talking in your in your videos as well. I was like, so you're just like mainlining some speed before you hit the record button, or like, what's the deal there? <laughs>
But uh, yeah, thanks for sharing the the story of the the name there. Um, for anyone who isn't kind of familiar with Euclid's elements, uh, like Abraham Lincoln said that that like taught him like the art of like reason and logic. And when he would like in his spare time, when he was like trying to expand his mind, he would read like Euclid's elements. And so it's it's kind of it's well known for being as you say, a paradigm of logic and reasoning. And it's a, it's a, it's a really cool influence, actually. I, I really like that name. That's awesome. Yeah, it's had a major influence on me, the book. Cool. All right, so we're about at the end of our time here. Uh, really enjoyed talking to you, Chris. Really enjoyed getting to learn about your project and what you've got going on here. So why don't you share with our listeners where they can find you, where they can find elements, what they could do to get involved. Yeah, sure. Well, first, I really appreciate you all having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you, and uh, I had a lot of fun. And uh, I wish your business the best of luck, and congratulations on the fundraise. And it sounds like I, I was looking at your website this morning a bit, and uh, it, it looks like you've got a lot of cool things going on, and it has all the hallmarks of a, an exciting new business. So uh, I wish you all the best. And if there's ways that we can work together, by all means, please, please, let's figure out something. So with all that said, uh, users, uh, they should go to Elements Dev. So I, I have the most unsearchable name. That's the bad part about Elements. You can't find it because trying to get Google to show Elements is impossible. So you have to memorize it. It's elements.dev and just go there. And then from there, you can find the GitHub projects. There's a lot of open source stuff. So you can go look at the application framework and, and other things. And then, you know, pop into the Discord and say hello. I, I loved, I wish more people would come into the Discord and chat with me. I'd like to talk to people. So that's the first thing you can do. Just come in, say hello, learn a bit about the project. You can ask any questions or whatever. There's no dumb questions. Uh, just come in there and say whatever's on your mind and, uh, and be social. So that's the best thing you can do. Right now, Elements is free. It's, a, it's an alpha. Um, so it, we're on alpha 110 at this point. So there's a lot of iteration. Download it. You can play with it. Try out building an app. Uh, there's a new UI language coming out here in a couple of weeks that I think is really exciting. So I'm looking forward to that. But yeah, elements.dev. That's the website. Just go there and you can find everything after that. Yeah, thank you. It's really cool what you're doing. And I wish more people would support you and get it to be big. Well, thank you. You know, we, we don't need one more opinionated tech stack, as in rebundling everything else. We need unique ISPs. <laughs> well, good. I'm, I'm glad I have a, a champion out there in the wild. Nice to talk to you both, and I hope you have a nice day. I did it on the last podcast as well, and it it worked fine. Was that JavaScript Jabber? Uh, yeah, the last one where I had to record my own was uh, Log Rocket. Yeah, I listened to. I actually just discovered that one last night when I was when I was doing some research. I actually listened to the Log Rocket one, but I missed it when it when it came out. And those okay. have been the main the main two. Have you done any others? Uh, I haven't done any others. It's been sort of opportunistic. If, if people ask me, I'll do them. But I haven't, I haven't done, um, I'm still actually working on the product and I spend most of my time on that. So, yeah. 
yeah totally yeah it's going to be very interesting conversation i'm very excited to to get into what you got cool, some pretty cool. cool pretty cool going on so got, oh, i got a lot of questions let me tell you yeah let's get into it well thanks for having me on i appreciate it